So uh, just to begin, if you don't mind introducing yourself and then we can start discussing. Uh, yeah, I'm Kevin Anderson. I'm a professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara. And I research on, Mar I've written books on Marx, Lenin, Foucault, and Hegel. And I'm also active in uh, the International Marxist Humanist Organization, which has a webzine and I'm one of the managing editors of that. Thanks so much. And just to begin, I'd love to kind of center the conversation around your book, Marx at the Margins, and kind of to talk about first before getting into, I guess, the content or, or what Marx had to say on some of these different questions. What got you interested in reading Marx on the subjects that he is not as known for writing about, or some of the writings that are not as frequently cited, such as the New York Tribune writings? I guess kind of what, what you know, inspired you to write the book? Well, it goes back to the 1970s and 1980s. It was actually my intellectual mentor, Rybenevskaya, who got very interested in what we know today as Marx's ethnological notebooks, which are the notebooks that he wrote that then Engels read and then created a book called Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, but which doesn't really talk that much about societies outside Europe, whereas Marx did in his notes and in other notes in that period. So that's what first got me interested in it. And then I went on to other things for a while and then I eventually came back to it, uh, you know, in, in, in this century uh, and then published the book, Mars at the Margins in 2010. Great, and I'd love to talk a little bit about the content and what you, you know, what insights you kind of gleaned from reading Marx, for example, writing in the New York Tribune about, about slavery or in particular writing about non-Western societies. I'm, I'm very interested in that and you know what Marx had to say. I think people frequently cite some of his letters to uh, different Russian thinkers and trying to understand what he would have made about Russia, for example, but the less people know about you know, his writings on other subjects, such as development in India, for example. So yeah, I'm curious what, what insights you gleaned from, from writing the book. Yeah, well, of non-Western societies, an odd term to use, uh, but if you say Global South, then you can't include Russia, which at that time was similar in its structure to a lot of the Global South countries in there was that it was, I mean, even more, maybe the way they were 50 years ago, uh, totally, pretty much totally agrarian, not really linked in that much to uh, the global capitalist system. I mean, indirectly, but, but not, a, not, not directly. And, uh, and then India, of course, is the other, society he's he spent a huge amount of uh, time researching uh, which of course is was as, as well known a british colony there's occasional writings i mean on china on indonesia and then the other thing that's relevant is uh in these ethological notebooks as we call them at the end of his life uh, he's concerned with native american societies like particularly the Iroquois, the Aztec a little bit. And, uh, and at that time, he also makes notes on ancient Rome. So actually at the end of his life, the very end, the last two or three years, he's looking, I mean, he looks at a lot of different societies, but ancient Rome, India, uh, are, are two, and, and Russia are, two of the, are three of these large agrarian empires that he looks like, or in different time periods, obviously. 
and then he's also looking at indigenous societies, particularly in, in North America. And I had read uh, a little bit of his letters to Vera Zesulich, um, Russian socialist, and, and these get brought up, as you mentioned, very frequently when talking about questions about, I think, whether Marx could anticipate the revolution in Russia or whether he could have theorized something about, you know, different interpretations of like leaping over stages of development uh, as Lenin and, and others would then kind of theorize it. And I wonder, how this relates to uh, this interpretation of, of development and of kind of a rigid Marxism that says you have to go through the bourgeois stage in order to achieve something like socialism. What, what did you discover in, in reading his kind of positions or, or research on different societies about this sort of rigid interpretation of Marxism? Well, even the notion of modes of production, I mean, you don't really find that word as much in Marx himself as, as, as later. I mean, it's implicit, obviously, though, when we talked about, you know, the ancient slave-based societies the, uh, of, of the Mediterranean, uh, feudalism, Western feudalism, and then capitalism, and maybe before that, so-called primitive societies, and then after that, socialism. But already by the 1850s, he's realizing that India, for example, has a very different trajectory, has had a very different trajectory, and maybe will have one, because there wasn't feudalism in India. He's already figured that out. So that whole model is something that was really created more after his death. And, and frankly, a lot of liberal scholars also had that, that model. Uh, but it's very clear by the end of his life that he's denying uh, feudalism in these large agrarian empires like, like India and China uh, in the, when they're in their pre-capitalist phase. And that uh, he, he also, uh, in the Grindrissa, well, as, as early as the Grindrissa of 1857, he, he's moved away from uh, this notion of feudalism as kind of a universal descriptor of pre-capitalist societies. And you can, you can say maybe it's just a word, but it's important because it's an it becomes an indicator that of a multilinear perspective, that not all societies are gonna wanna go through or should go through or need to go through the same pathway of development. One of the most notorious examples of saying that is Lear, the South African Communist Party, Joe Slovo, who at the time of the dismantling of apartheid, basically advocated what we call today neoliberalism. Said, we, we nope, sorry, you know, you shouldn't go on strike quite so much, although you can, because we're free now. But we have to go through uh, we have to go through capitalism, uh, uh, the worst kind of capitalism, except maybe fascism. We have to go through that, uh, and then later on, you know, we, we can talk about the socialist goal. And when he says that, you know, if if uh, if a nationalist like Mandela with Marxist coloration had said that, eh, that would have had some resonance with the Marxist. When the head of the Communist Party says it. It makes it a lot harder for younger socialists to say, you know, no, no, that's not what Marx said or whatever. So this, it, this stages ideology is not just something we argue about in academia, but it has huge consequences. Uh, it's really a left-wing version of the Fukuyama thesis that says history has come to an end 
and we have to just keep on this uh, pathway. The only difference is that they said, well, sometime way where in the future, history might happen again, but it, it's, it's not gonna be very soon. That's an excellent point. And I, I think that that speaks to perhaps like a reinterpretation of, of some of these theories by something that, that I've picked up on, for example, by reading like Walter Rodney is a more strong emphasis on combined development and uneven development as, as Trotsky was writing about it in some thinkers of the global South to think less about this kind of rigid reading of we have to go through capitalism instead to think about the application of something like combined development instead in, in terms of thinking about development. And I, I wonder, you write in the first chapter about Marx's insight on the encounter with colonialism and how it potentially affects stages of development. And in, in theorizing for the global South, of course, it has to be reckoned with about what colonialism, you know, the impact of it on stages or, or developments of, of the means of production. So what insight did Marx have on on the encounter with colonialism, you touched on you know, his writings on Indonesia, on India, on China, and in Algeria as well. And kind of what insight did he have into colonialism and how it, it ruptures potentially this model of development? Yeah, well, I mean, his initial idea is that, well, you can see it in the Communist Manifesto, is that all the world is going to be absorbed very quickly by capitalism that while that's painful, it's ultimately not such a bad thing because we all have to go through it. At that time, he really didn't have that much knowledge of the global South. Uh, but as he starts to look into it more, uh, even a couple years later, uh, he's talking about the Chinese who were resisting British colonialism, uh, probably at that time more than the Indians are. So he admires that. Uh, and uh, so the articles he writes about China very early on are anti-colonialist. Uh, and, and except for that line in the Communist Manifesto, which says this horrible line where they say, uh, you know, it breaks down these Chinese walls and forces these most barbarian nations to submit to civilization. I mean, you know, that, that sounds right wing when you quote that in today's term. But they moved away from that so they were, we could say, I mean, the people who are always attacking Marx as Eurocentric have a point in, in the sense that, yeah, there are some, some earlier writings which are problematic, uh, and we have to look at the evolution of, of, of his writings. Uh, he never says that colonialism is great, that it doesn't, isn't brutal and exploitative, but he's kind of saying just as in some ways capitalism is superior to feudalism, colonialism is superior to uh, these pre capitalist societies. Uh, but he later on retracts that uh, as well. Uh, and so by 57, which is only 10 years after the manifesto, you have this gigantic sepoy uprising in India that goes on for three years and almost kicks the British out of India. Ian Engels are very supportive of that. And you could never publish articles like this in an American newspaper today unless it was like Ukraine or something that the US and the British are supporting, then you could do it. But they have like article after article extolling how the bravery of the Indian resistance and how horrible the British are. They even quote the British using the N-word saying, you know, every N-word we 
we catch, we string up, you know, referring to the Indians. Uh, it's all in there. And that's the New York Tribune, our leading newspaper, which Abraham Lincoln read, but it was edited by people who were simultaneously pro-capitalist and utopian socialists. And uh, for the confused, we call it a confused set of ideas if you wanted to, but they strongly supported the abolitionist movement and uh, they were open to a degree of socialist thinking uh, and, and, and some of their editors more than others. So, and so Marxist stuff appeared there and people tend to think of that as like, well, he had to censor himself a lot. He didn't really have to censor himself all that much. He couldn't write long theoretical treatises on the dialectic or fetishism of commodity. I mean, they were a newspaper. They weren't a theoretical journal, but he published a lot of pretty radical stuff there. Uh, but the initial stuff is kind of Eurocentric in a bad sense uh, when, when he talks about uh, India. And that's the stuff a lot of people quote. Of course, it became really famous to intellectuals in this country and yeah, everywhere when Edward Said singled out Marx in a few pages in his famous book, Orientalism, lumped Marx together with all those uh, 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 other colonialist members. <clears throat> and so in a sense, that's the other impetus for my book. I kind of wanted to respond to people like Edward Said, that kind of, you know, critique of Marx as a Eurocentrist and so on, because I think then, I think now that it's blocking a lot of younger intellectuals from uh, considering that. I mean, I think that's in the academy or really among educated people, people with university education. So I mean, I think that nowadays is as big a barrier looking at Marx as saying, well, the Soviet Union was a failure. So I think there's an awareness by a lot of people that Marx was not the same thing as the Soviet Union. I think Putin has helped us clarify that with an attack on Lenin a couple months ago. Well, I think that's a really important point to highlight is to say, I think a lot of people have dismissed Marx to a certain extent as a Western or Eurocentric thinker. And I think, this has to do with kind of as we were talking before this synthesization of a, a, a Marxism that is, you know, often like a misreading and an overly synthesized worldview uh, of his thoughts and, and doesn't include some of the later writings. And I wonder maybe just to dive into that detail a little bit more throughout your book and, and in the sort of preface to it as well, you talk about the role of Engels in, in sort of shaping what we understand as, as Marxism and as well, like the texts that we consider, you know, that, that formulate his thought and what we leave out of there. So what did you find and, and what did, you, you know, what verdict did you ultimately come to on, on this, uh, of Engels' role in creating this and, and of certain texts being privileged as Marxist and others as being, well, you know, we don't necessarily want to include that because it contradicts something. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> Engels, you know, you have to give him credit. He put together volumes two and three of Capital, he safeguarded Marxist papers and archives, if you want to call them that. Uh, and it was a huge amount of work to create, especially volume three of Capital from those, those drafts. At the same time, there, there, there's, uh, well, there's four things that he does that are problematic. One is how he edits volumes two and three of Capital. Some of that has been called into question. 
Secondly, how he edits volume one of Capital, which I'm, I've written a lot about, that there's a French edition of Capital, which actually conclude, includes some anti-unilinear, some multilinear passages that Engels leaves out. Marx had three editions of Capital in his own lifetime. He was multilingual. We should not consider him a German thinker. This is like really reductionist. Because he published one of his first books in French, Poverty of Philosophy, Civil War in France about the Paris Commune has to be read in English if you want to read the original, because that's the language he wrote it in. And this French edition of Capital was the last edition he, uh, he actually worked on. So it's, the, it's in a sense the most advanced version, but Engels didn't like it very much, thought it was simplistic. He thought Marx had simplified for the French reader. Uh, and uh, so he didn't use it very much, although he did use some parts of it when he formulated what we know as the definitive edition of volume one. The third thing Engels does is dialectics gets kind of reduced to a mechanistic type of thing of similar to the experimental method in natural sciences. And then the, the, uh, the fourth thing is these ethnological notebooks. Engels, uh, right after Mars's death, a year after his death, he wrote this book, Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State. He said he's basing it on Marx's notebooks, but Marx's notebooks are, are much more complicated and interesting. And Engels has that pretty rigid stage theory there, which kind of tells you that women were free before the rise of class society and property and the state five to 10,000 years ago. Women have become subjugated by patriarchy ever since. And so there's no, it's, it's an undifferentiated history. That, that there, were no, there are no periods where women push back that much until the very modern period. And that's to be un, supposed to be under the socialist leadership. So what happens then is women's uh, liberation or feminism gets subordinated to class and economic and socialism. Uh, because it's so tied into capitalism that, that there's no, almost no point in having a women's movement unless we overthrow capitalism, that you can't really accomplish anything. That's what comes out of it. Uh, and so that's, what we, that's why until the 60s, the left-wing women's movements were uh, kind of, uh, there were youth movements and women's movements that were associated with the, with the big socialist movements that were led by men. Primarily, there were exceptions like Rosa Luxemburg. And so uh, the notion of the black movement, the women's movement, as independent factors in history, uh, which is the kind of thing Marx himself thought sometimes uh, was, was not really uh, developed. So, so we've got kind of a stage theory in terms of social movements, too. Uh, and so well, Engels' book is a great book in some ways. It, it's great that a Marxist man wrote a whole book on this issue. It is one of the three or four, I guess, classic books of you know, pre-1950 feminism. But it, 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 has, it has flaws, and uh, we need to look at what Marx himself wrote if we want to get at the Marxist, at a Marxist analysis. And my former student, Heather Brown, has a well-received book on this called Marx on Gender and the Family. 
And you also relate in the last chapter of the text, you talk a little bit about uh, the Marx Engels Gesamtausgabe, and you talk a little bit about, you know, the the lack of a lot of Marx's writing having been translated into no language and having not been published at all. Can you explain yes. a little bit more about, you know, exactly what what's happened there and how there's still a, a wealth of, of his writings that have not been published at all? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, just to back up, I mean, a lot of the writings we consider the most important were not published by Engels or even published by Lenin's life. I'm talking about the 1844 manuscripts and the Grindrissa and the German ideology. And I think alongside Capital, aren't those Marx's major works nowadays? So yeah, there was a lot that was left out. Uh, most of the actual writings have now been published, but they, they were published in an odd way where the Stalinists who had most of the, did most, had most of the money and resources to publish all these things. They would always publish the letters by Marx and Engels, but they wouldn't publish the letters to them. I don't know if they thought it would like distract the comrades or something like that. So you don't have the, it's really hard to read the correspondence when you don't have both, both sides of it. Uh, and then there's this category called notebooks. These go back to the, his earliest times. Uh, some of his early notebooks on economics, he's actually reading Adam Smith and these people in French in the early 1840s or the mid 1840s because his English isn't good enough yet. So he's reading the French translation. So we have all these notes. We have notes on enlightenment thinkers like Rousseau and so forth. And then a lot of these writings that I was talking about before on India, Rome, Russia, Native, Native Americans, these are in notebook form. These aren't like, these aren't unpublished essays. These are unpublished research notebooks where he occasionally makes comments, but most of the time he's just copying down quotes and summaries of other authors. But it's quite rich and it, it's really interesting to think about why he didn't finish what was supposed to be volumes two and three of Capital he finishes the French edition in 1875, he lives eight years longer. So what is he doing with all that time? And he's researching a lot of parts of the world that weren't that crucial to the book Capital. And so, and some people used to say, well, his mental capacities were deteriorating. So he started looking at easier stuff. The old Eurocentric Marxists used to say that, but Marx learned Russian. In this period, uh, he, he didn't start learning until about 1870 when he was about 50 years old. And uh, he was good enough that he was reading not only Russian history and economic data, but he was reading an anthropological book in Russian on India. You know, a society, you know, he didn't know that much about compared to Europe. Uh, and we've looked at it and we haven't found any errors because he's, he's making his notes in German. We haven't found any errors in the way that he understood the Russian. Um, so this is so a huge amount. So we could say perhaps that India, Russia, and Native American societies would have been more crucial to what became volumes two and three of capital. Engels, for his part, has very little interest in societies outside Europe. You, you, since you're an Africanist, he told me, you know about the partition of Africa in 1884, pretty big deal. You cannot find an essay by Engels on this matter. 
we cannot find an essay by Engels on what Luxembourg and Lenin were to call imperialism. Engels lived all the way to 1895, was intellectually active as late as 1894 when he published Volume Three of Capital. So yeah, he kind of was in his own silo a little bit uh, in terms of looking at the developments. In, I mean, even if he didn't want to consider anti-colonial revolts, he should have considered more the new stage of capitalism that was coming into being uh, in the 1880s. And, and with respect to Marx's writings and, and observations on Russia, I'm curious about maybe delving a little bit deeper into his thoughts and how some of the, the trends of what he was noting would perhaps come up later in uh, for example, like the national and colonial theses uh, presented at the Comintern that, that Lenin wrote and some of these ideas about national democratic revolution as opposed to bourgeois revolution, his, his thoughts on nationality and nationalism in general. I'm kind of curious about that as well. Yeah, yeah. This, so, I mean, when Lenin went in that direction, he really had started to reread Marx. Not, now, the stuff I was just talking about, he didn't know. Nobody knew that. I was just sitting in handwritten manuscripts in archives. But uh, what he did know was Marx's writings on, on Poland and Ireland. At the time, they were, these were both colonized societies. Their nationalist movements were supported by almost the entire European left, very strongly, to the point where when the, when the French workers would rise up or go on, go on a mass strike, they might chant, Abala la bourgeoisie, but they would also chant Viva la Polonia. I, I can't, maybe it's like long live Palestine that may be multiplied by 10 in terms of the uh, importance it had to the left because Russia, which occupied Poland and which the Poles resisted and were a thorn in the side of Russia, uh, was the counter-revolutionary power, the prime counter-revolutionary power. They, they toppled, they, they, they they helped topple the French Revolution and Napoleon's regime. They helped in 1830 against those revolutions. In 1848, they actually had hundreds of thousands of troops in Central Europe crushing the democratic uh, revolutions. So he's very concerned with these, the national liberation movement in places like Poland. So in the Communist Manifesto, everybody knows the sentence, the workers have no country, and implies that nationalism is always like a bad thing. But if you look at the specific demands of the communists at the last page, which people don't read up to usually, it says, we support the national liberation movement of Poland, especially that wing of it that is opposed to the Polish landlords, the native landlords, as much as it is to the foreign occupier. Similarly with Ireland, and because Ireland was so intertwined with Britain, and he was active in Britain during the time, you know, his whole life, but especially during the time of the First International, you have a lot of crisscrossing between the Irish uh, national movement, which in that particular period, the 1860s, was the Fenians, and they were left wing. They were against landlords. They didn't have a strong relationship with the Catholic Church, unlike some of the earlier or later uh, versions of Irish nationalism. Not all the later ones, but, but some of them. Uh, so they really strongly, you'll find a line mentioning the Fenians in a positive sense, actually, in Capital Volume 1, just a hint of that. But his writings at that time on Ireland are quite explicit 
he has a line that says something like, I used to think, and this is against the unilinear perspective too. I used to think that, uh, that the way that Ireland would be liberated would be the British working class would come to power and they'd have a different policy and they'd help Ireland to develop. I now realize that the British workers can accomplish nothing as long as Ireland, until Ireland is free. And he goes into this whole thing about how the uh, nationalist conscience of the British, which we would call racist in today's terms, uh, language toward the Irish inhibits the development of class consciousness in England. But if the Irish could rise up, that would help to shatter this. And uh, he has this thing, well, the revolution would start in France. You know, he's writing like not around the time of the Paris Commune. It would probably start in France, but then uh, it might touch off also on the other side in Ireland. And then it would, and then it would have to spread from there to Britain because Britain is so important because it's at that time by far the only really developed capitalist country with a large working class. And so he's obviously thinking in terms of like, not in a single country. And then later on, he says like Russia, the Russian peasant uprising could help touch off a European wide uh, workers revolution. And that the two would interact with each other. So he's very, very interested in that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm actually telling you some of this stuff I'm working on in my next book, uh, which goes just from that Ireland stuff up to the end of his life. Yeah, very interesting questions. And, and I think this is making me think also of some of Marx's writings on the subject of race and, and how this relates to, you know, he talks a lot about that question in relation to Irish workers, but I'm also curious about his writings on race with respect to talking about slavery and, and commenting on the American Civil War. So I guess, you know, what, what are some of the main insights on this? People are somewhat familiar about his position in support of, of the North and against, uh, you know, calling it the slaveholders rebellion instead of the Civil War. But, you know, what insight does it provide about his views on, on race in general and, and on abolition of slavery? Yeah, well, Marx was certainly an abolitionist from his earliest days. There's never a period where like with India, he doesn't know what he's talking about a little bit. So you know, he was, I mean, Britain was one of the first large countries to abolish slavery permanently. I mean, the French did during the revolution, which people forget about under the Jacobins. Uh, so yeah, he's very aware of that. There's a, there's a the, the newspaper he writes for, the Tribune is, is as I mentioned, an abolitionist newspaper. But even as early as 1846, he, before the uh, Communist Manifesto, he has this, this uh, well, it's in Poverty and Philosophy too, uh, that uh, you, know, you can't really have capitalism without slavery and the colonies. And so the colonies and slaveries are part of the bedrock of capitalism. He says that, that, that early. Uh, by the time of John Brown's raid and the outbreak of the Civil War, though, it shifts in the sense that he views the Civil War as a potentially revolutionary uprising. Uh, that, uh, I mean, he certainly implies that it's the greatest revolutionary transformation since the French Revolution. And it's hard for us to get our heads around this today because we look at it and we say it was unfinished uh, and Blacks, uh, did not get the land that some of the radicals 
uh, agreed agreed on, and certainly the black former slaves uh, agitated for uh, the forty acres and a mule. Uh, and you can find language very similar to 40 acres and a mule right in the 1867 preface to Capital, basically saying this may be happening. Uh, revolutionary transformations are taking place on the other side of the Atlantic. It didn't come to pass, as we know. But even the abolition of slavery, unlike the British version, without compensation, was one of the greatest expropriations of private property in history, except for maybe the French Revolution taking over the land of the peasants, or later on the Russian land of the landlords, or later on the Russian and Chinese revolutions doing the same thing. This was huge. Uh, and the war involved hundreds of thousands of people. It involved the emancipation of 4 million people. It had economic as well as political consequences. It created for the first time a potentially unified working class because previous to that, half of the working class had been in what's called free, formerly free labor. And then the other half had been enslaved. And it was, that made it even harder to uh, unite across those lines. But with the end of the Civil War, you had labor unions forming for the first time on a national basis in this country, which he actually mentions also in Capital Volume 1. And there was tremendous potential. And I think, you know, people look at the revolutionary periods of the United States. And uh, for a long time, I think, when I was young, people used to say the 1930s. And then, you know, some people say the 60s sometimes, but I think there's increasing uh, awareness that uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction was maybe the most radical period of all of these. And of course, Karl Marx was right there witnessing that and writing about it. It's all going on, as Andrew Zimmerman points out in the newest version of Marx's writings on the Civil War. Marx was finishing up capital at the same time that the Civil War was finishing up. His writings on this stuff is intertwined with his finishing up the book Capital. And my mentor, Rodney Sky and C.L.R. James, they also were saying something similar to that way back in the 1940s, that we can't even really grasp what he was doing in Capital without looking at the Civil War in the United States. And of course, he says right there, it's not, it's not uttered in the 60s, of this century, but this last century, but the century of, of the 19th, 19th century, labor cannot be emancipated in the white skin where in the black skin it is branded. He's already saying that quite openly, already openly supporting John Brown's uprising, just wishing that it would extend itself to a mass uprising of, of slaves um, and so forth. I wasn't aware of the the comments in, in support of John Brown, but yeah, it's it's an incredible you know historical overlap to see, um, and I, I wonder perhaps to relate that to uh, as you're mentioning C.L.R. James um, and his writings in on Pan African revolts, and he talks about uh, African American revolution as well in the United States um, and the potential it has for being a revolutionary moment. Yes, um, I'm curious about you know what Marx's view of American kind of class orientation was and whether he you know, wrote on the subject of a feudal class character in the South um, and the potential you know, uneven developments of the South and the North itself and kind of his insight on that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, there, there's no like essay where he does an analysis of the Southern 
slave uh, economy. But uh, there's passages here and there. And one thing he keeps stressing, it's just, this is capitalist slavery. He, in several passages, calls it the worst form of slavery that has ever existed in human history, but it, because it combines rigorous mechanized exploitation of capitalism with time clocks and everything, with the whip and the chain and the branding and all these methods of really torture that the most ancient forms of slavery use. So it's the worst of both combined together. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, and, and he, uh, he saw it as a major economic uh, entity as many other people did at that time. In terms of wealth, it was still the most developed part of the United States at the time of the Civil War. I mean, the North was gaining, but, uh, or maybe that maybe by the time of the Civil War that it reversed, but there were many years when the South was the wealthiest part uh, of the country. Uh, he's also concerned with the way that uh, white labor in both the North and in Britain became mobilized over the issue. He's concerned with the transformation that white workers undergo when they actually are in the Union Army and uh, fighting the Confederates and encountering the brutalities of slavery on, on a direct basis. But even more so, he writes a lot about the British workers whose factories were shut down because of the war. And there were lots of appeals from all elements of the ruling classes that they should back an intervention in the United States. Uh, they used language of course, like always, when they're implicitly defending slavery, they use language of freedom, freedom of the seas. We need to be able to trade and have free trade of the cotton. And then he would point out correctly that in the initial, day, initial days, they were pointing out you know, that Lincoln hasn't called for abolition of slavery. So there really isn't a big difference between them. And so they, they but the workers were just adamant uh, that they were not going to be used in this way. And while they had, were still denied voting rights, Adult male uh, men, adult males without a significant property holdings could not vote in Britain in the 1860s. And so what, what, the, what they could do was hold public meetings of uh, supporting the Northern side in the war, even though it was causing them economic sacrifice at home. So this to Marx and others was a tremendous example of working proletarian internationalism. You know, I think that's that's correct. Absolutely, and um, I'm curious. I guess in in another chapter of your book, you talk more about the themes carrying over from the Grundrisse to capital. You talk about multilinear themes. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what these themes are and and how his analysis about, as you were just mentioning, capital as slavery, kind of because of course he, he elaborates a lot on this in Capital and talks about capital as its own type of slavery. To what extent do you see some of these themes, you know, uh, being brought up at first in the Grandrisa and carried over? Or what are some of the other multilinear themes that he's continuing yeah, on? I don't think the Grandrisa tells us that much about slavery and racism and anti-racism in the United States, except for this one magnificent passage about Jamaica, because uh, he talks about the free blacks of Jamaica just don't want to go work on the plantation anymore. <laughs> They're not being forced to, and they 
they can't, they don't have a way of forcing them to do it. And it's very frustrating. And the economy is, uh, 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 the profit-making type of economy is, is going down. Uh, the, the British landlord class is complaining. Uh, but the Grindrissa is more important for this global kind of thing about whether places like Russia or later on South Africa have to go through this sta these stages because some people read his book Capital, which has this long section about the destruction of the European village economy, driving people off the land to become proletarians. Uh, and does Russia have to go through that? A lot of people, including Russian admirers of his, thought that. But he has uh, there's various letters and stuff where he indicates that's either not true or not necessarily true. Uh, but we have to be careful. There kind of would be three positions. One would be, oh yeah, Russia has to, you know, it's unilinear. They have to go, sorry, but you've got to be uprooted and have these smoky factories just like everyone else. And then maybe later on have socialism 50 years from now. You're just at an earlier stage than we Western Europeans are. Then there's the one that says, oh, rural socialism. Let's take these, uh, this is what our chairman now advocates, uh, Gandhi and Ujamaa and Tanzania advocate to some extent uh, that, uh, you know, we can have rural socialists, let, let, let's just retreat to some extent uh, and, and just develop by our, on our own. But then you're not gonna have the modern technology. Uh, so Marx is like a middle pathway, he says that the Russian Revolution, based on the peasants and their collective social forms inside their villages, because they have, in a, in a sense, a village communism already, um, that that can lead to a wider communist development, by which he seems to mean all of Europe, if it can link up with the working class movement in the West. So that the two are. Uh, in some ways, it's similar to what Leon Trotsky later said that you alluded to uneven and combined development that the revolution might be touched off, or the theory of permanent revolution. The revolution might be touched off in a place like Russia that was less developed, but it would have to be completed in uh, Western, in the more industrialized part of the world. Uh, yes and no, because Trotsky and a lot of that tradition don't have much to say about the peasants. They're only interested in the working classes. So Marx was very interested in the peasants throughout his life, but especially at the end of his life and the varieties of peasantry that existed around the world and the revolutionary potential, particularly in Russia. Thank you. And I, I know we're running out of time, but I wonder if you could briefly talk a little bit about how you relate a lot of the ideas that you picked up upon on this book to Marxist humanism, um, as well as the writings of, of Raya Dayanovskaya um, and, and C.L.R. James, and yeah, I guess how these relate. Well, I mean, various people picked up some of these threads. Uh, certainly, Lenin did probably more than all the other Marxists in the generation after Marx with his uh, theses on colonialism and anti-colonialism, national liberation, because they, until then, they really were kind of, oppo they opposed colonialism to some extent 
and some more than others, but they couldn't, they would say things well, like, well, Poland has changed so much since Marx's time that we can no longer support those nationalists over there. They would say things like that. And, and with the Irish too, read what Trotsky said about Ireland, read what Lenin and Trotsky said about Easter rebellion in Ireland in 1916. It's very different. Lenin says this is a harbinger of the revolutions to come in the colonized world. Uh, and Trotsky says it's the old, it's the last vestige of the old, this nationalism, and pretty soon they're gonna get a class consciousness and learn how to really fight. So it's kind of condescending. Uh, so then the Johnson Forest tendency, C.L.R. James and Rodney Neal's kind, Grace Lee Boss, what they do is they're very interested in black labor in America and other countries, but let's stick to America, the US. And so, but they have to fight the class reductionists then as now. So there are people in these Trotskyist parties that they were in who say, you know, these black organizations, they're either nationalists and separatists or they're liberal like the NAACP. We have to organize the black workers. We were interested in black workers. Uh, so they fought them partly on empirical grounds. You know, we could talk about in the South or the North, wherever, how race and class were intertwined, but they also fought it on the grounds of Marxist theory. They found the writings of Trotsky and Lenin, not only on colonialism, but Trotsky has a wonderful article on a, this little, it's an interview, it's a conversation, but it's quite good. And he says, basically, the American Marxists have ignored race and they're never gonna get anywhere until they wake up and start doing so because this is the most oppressed part of the population. And in the room, in the conversation is like a Spanish revolutionary who's like, yeah, well, you know, like in Spain, the Catalans and the Basques, you know, we, we learned, you know, that we have to support these in order to like have a, a chance uh, at revolution in the intellectual world, but even more widely, we have two lefts. We have a left that's based on race and gender and sexuality, and we have a left that's based on class. And they shout at each other, and uh, each calls the other liberal, or Eurocentric or whatever. Uh, and they, there has to be some kind of a dialectical appropriation on both sides of that. Uh, and that's the tradition I came out of always did that, tried to do that. I mean, it's a very hard thing to do, but you have to uh, keep trying to, uh, to do that. I mean, you go back to the 60s, the Columbia Student Revolt, they had the white students, mainly white SDS, that was their main thing was the Vietnam War. The black students, not that they weren't opposed to the Vietnam War too, but their main thing was racism right on the campus and building this gym in Harlem, expropriating land uh, from the community. And uh, there were the, but there was an uneasy kind of a unity and uh, we have to uh, work at that. And frankly, the main burden is on the white side to uh, overcome its condescension and you know, implicit racism and so forth. Uh, and it's an old issue old issue that goes back all the way to Karl Marx who says the British workers have to get this condescending attitude out of their heads 
uh, about the Irish, if they're ever going to have a chance of having a serious socialist movement in Britain. Well, thank you so much, Professor. And I know uh, we're out of time, but I wonder if you can just briefly, you, you were mentioning some other texts by former students before. I wonder if you can mention some other texts that are worth reading for anybody listening. Um, you can you know, check out some other books on this subject. Sure. Um, okay, I, I mentioned my mentor, Rod Denierskaya, the book, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, Women's Liberation and Marxist Philosophy of Revolution. C.L.R. James of The Black Jacobins is a great work. Uh, August Nims has, has a book on race and slavery in the United States uh, from Marx, Marx and Engels on, on, on race and slavery. That's, that, that, that's quite good. Uh, the, uh, there's also a David Smith at University of Kansas has written a lot on the ethological notebooks of Marx. Heather Brown, who I mentioned before, uh, Marx and Feminism. Uh, I edited a collection called Rydenievskaya's Inter Intersectional Marxism that appeared last year. Uh, that looks at that from a number of, of different angles. Uh, Franz Fanon, I think, is one of the great writers of the last 50 years, uh, maybe 60 years by now. One of the greatest Marxist thinkers, even though he didn't openly call himself a Marxist. Um, on imperialism in general, of course, Rosa Luxemburg uh, is extremely important, although she didn't share the position about national liberation, unfortunately. Uh, so there's a number of different places to, to start. Uh, and I'm sure I've forgotten some things, but uh, that's, those are, I hope, helpful. Thank you so much, Professor. And, and I totally agree, a lot of those are great recommendations. Um, I'd love to stay in touch after this and uh, I'm making my way through Marx of the Margins, but it's a fantastic book and I highly recommend thank you. Uh, people listening read it. So thank you so much and, uh, and take care. Thank you, I'm delighted to uh, talk to you and to, and to all the people that be listening to this and, and feel free to get in touch with me. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, take care.